I've shared with you uh, in the past my love for spy movies and spy literature. And one of the reasons I'm drawn to it is because of all the cool gadgets. And in particular, when uh, people are trying to get into one of those super locked spaces, you know, the biometrics that are often pulled out. I love uh, the whole handprint. You know, it's not just a thumbprint. It's a whole scan of the palm, or you've probably seen in movies or read about them, the retinal scans where they, you know, you're whatever they're looking at. I don't even know. Who cares about the science behind it? It's just really cool that it can work. And, and now uh, even things like uh, facial recognition and uh, phones are right on the cusp of uh, using facial recognition. They've uh, been through the, the biometric of fingerprints and now the new iPhone, I'm told, thanks to my children. They keep me informed. The new iPhones are going to use facial recognition to be able to identify you as its owner and proper user. And it's really remarkable, uh, all of these things. And um, I I'm so uh, love it uh, all the way. Uh, last week, um, we talked about the idea when we we're going through our series on the Reformation and Reformation thought and why it is still so important to us and how Reformation thinking still gives shape to how we structure our worship services, how we study our Bible, how we live our lives day to day in the grip of God's grace. Last week, we talked about faith alone and how it's not for us to work, work, work in order to please God, to be acceptable to Him. In fact, the Bible tells us that that there's nothing we can do to actually earn credits with God. And it's hard for us in our modern day because we're so accustomed to going and earning things and to even playing in games. We, we build credits to go on to the next level or relationally we build credits with people in order to sometimes to provide uh, other favors down the road. Those types of things, we're accustomed to that. And we sometimes try to translate that into the spiritual realm. But the Bible says, with God, there's no earning of credits for Him to accept us, and we must rely solely on the work He's already done, and we receive that through our faith in Christ alone. Today, as we talk about Jesus, as we think about Him and Him alone, uh, we left last week thinking about, well, if I can't depend on myself, or if I'm not supposed to take the work of Jesus and then add to it some things that I do on my own just to give me a little extra credit... Right? That's not what the Scripture says. It's solely resting in the completed work of Jesus. Right? We talked about the very last words. Right? We, we pay extra attention to the last words of people. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, His very last words before He took His very last breath, you remember what it was? It is finished. He wasn't talking just that His life was now over. He was helping us know that the work that He had come to accomplish, the goal, the task that He had come for, He didn't come just to teach. He didn't come just to to show us some picture of God. He came for a very specific purpose, and that was to replace your death and my death with His own, so that through His new life, you and I too might know new life. When He says it is finished. He was saying that the work that he had done on the cross to absorb your sin into himself was now complete. And we received the benefit of that work through our faith in saying, thank you, Jesus. But sometimes we wrestle because we think it's a little too easy. 
It's just a little too convenient. I'm used to to working hard. We live in a county where people know what it is to be well-educated and to earn that education. People know what it is to work real hard and to be real successful. And without their involvement, the success wouldn't have happened. And so we wrestle with this. But it's hard to think that we can actually come to God without any sort of help or intermediary. I mean, we think about governments. They have ambassadors that go out to other countries in order to represent the government in that particular place. We know company presidents. They have teams of lawyers that serve as intermediaries when uh, legal issues arise. Even marriages who are at the, the the breaking point relationally, they often engage a mediator to help bring uh, some sort of something out of this broken relationship. And we sometimes think we should also apply this to the theological realm and to our spiritual lives, that if we need brokers or intermediaries in our life in other realms, shouldn't we need one for God? And like my theology teacher said, a great answer to any theological question is yes and no. <laughs> No, you don't need someone else. You don't need a priest or a particular church service or those types of things. But yes, you need God himself to serve as your intermediary. But no one else. No one else. We don't approach God through the work of somebody else. We don't trust in the works of other people. Medieval theology would say something like this. This is back in the 1500s, the 1600s. There was a thought that developed that if you came to each worship service, that a little bit of the grace that came out of that worship service would somehow be applied to your account and it would give you a little extra credit before God. The Reformers came along and said, No, that's not biblical Christianity. Those are extra things that have developed over time, but it doesn't take us back to what the Scripture said in the church that God, uh, Jesus, intended to leave. That wasn't what they said. People thought that church services were somehow uh, alone, the spiritual broker in our lives. Sometimes this thought with Jesus, this this immense, broad-ranging thought about Jesus and and him being a fearsome judge began to emerge as, as a prominent theme. And people were so afraid of Jesus at the time. And so what in medieval practice of theology, this idea thought, well, if Jesus is so inapproachable because he's the fearsome judge, then maybe through someone else I can approach him. And maybe I can come and approach him through his mother because Jesus wouldn't deny his mother And so this whole concept of of going and praying through and to Mary as an intermediary to Jesus and then on, that that sprang up. And the Reformers came along and said, there's nothing about that in the Scripture. That's not the way God would have His church be developed. And then others would think, well, surely if I come to a priest, they've been specially chosen and specially trained, and they stand somehow as a special segue or, or conduit of God's grace. And the Reformers said, no, no, no. Preachers, believe it or not, pastors are just plain old folk. I know that may be hard for you to believe. (laughs) I'm here to tell you. My wife is here to tell you. We're plain old ordinary folk. Right? No priest stands as a a go-between between you and God. That's a terrible burden, again, to have to carry. Just like 
The burden we talked about last week, the burden of thinking that I need to earn credit with God because if I have to do that, then how do I know if I've earned enough? How will I ever know? What a terrible burden to carry through life. And God says, I have come to remove that burden away from you because you cannot earn, David. You can't earn enough credit with God. You have to rely solely on the work that Jesus has finished. It is finished. And you embrace that work through your faith. By faith alone, through Christ alone. Anytime you're tempted to think that if I'm to be right with God, I need Jesus plus something else, you're off course. That's not biblical thought. It is Jesus alone and your embrace and your reliance on what Jesus has done for you already. It's an understanding of what He's done. It's an understanding of why He's done it. And it's an embrace wholeheartedly for that in your own life. It's through Christ and His completed work alone upon which we rest and build our lives. Open your Bibles, would you, to Colossians chapter 1. Yes, I'm aware of the time. Colossians chapter 1. I want to read a few verses and just reflect on them. And then I'm going to send you home with some more verses to read. Is that okay? All right. That's going to be your homework this week. Just like Mission Impossible, if you choose to accept it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Here's what God says through the Apostle Paul. Speaking about Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. The supremacy. Hear it again. (laughs) So that Jesus might have the supremacy. Jesus Christ alone. Verse 19, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Jesus is described as the image of the invisible God. Jesus, when we look at Jesus, He is the one who makes that which is invisible visible. Sometimes when I talk to people and they they try to describe God as they have fashioned them or think He ought to be in their own mind, that they sort of assign character traits to the God they think ought to be, the way He ought to be, the personality He ought to have. And I often ask them, well, how do you come up with these concepts? What, What shapes your thinking in this area? And uh, it's usually, you know, they collected this thing and this thing. And, and I, I'm kind of hoping that they'll ask me, 
about my thought of God. And I'll say, well, I, I think I go to a God who's actually given us a snapshot of who he actually is. Because God with a face is the person of Jesus. I don't have to guess anymore at what God's character is like, at the things he loves, at the things he turns his face away from, at the way life ought to be lived. Uh, and on and on we could go down the list. What's so interesting about this passage is when the Apostle Paul describes Jesus as the image of God, he's, for a Jewish mind of the day, who is steeped in Old Testament teaching, what was one of the big ten? You shall not make a graven idol or image. You shall not reproduce anything that you think will somehow capture the essence of God. You are not supposed to take and carve out and develop something that, that you would say represents God. Now, if, if I had in my hand any Giants fans in the house? No? None? Zero? No Giants fans? Oh, okay. Alright, I got one. Alright. You don't even have to be brave to, to announce that here. But if I held in my hand a bobblehead of Buster Posey, would I be holding in my hand Buster Posey himself? No? Is this some sort of image of Buster Posey? Sure. I mean, in a sense, I could recognize it as Buster Posey even with his head bobbing back and forth. But I don't have Buster Posey right here. God informed the Hebrew people that they were not to make images to somehow represent God. Because here's why. When you, when you make images like that, it takes, something, it takes something out of the grandeur of God and makes Him small. It takes the immensity of God and makes Him more minuscule. It takes His grandeur and makes Him small. It, it takes the limitless one and makes Him limited. The magnificent God of creation is minimized. So Jesus... And Paul uses this language. He says, Jesus, now you look at Jesus because he is indeed the actual image of God. He is a picture and an understanding of who God is himself. But he goes on. He doesn't just say he's the picture of God. It says that God was pleased to have all of the fullness of divinity to rest in Jesus. This is one of the great passages that we understand that Jesus really we're supposed to understand Him as God in the flesh. No mere human. Right? He is unlike any other person who ever stepped foot on this planet. He is utterly unique. And He more than represents uh, God because of this reality. He's actually God in the flesh. He shares the same substance as God and makes the character of God known in the human sphere. Um, here's part of your homework. Are you ready? All right. When I was in Africa, I picked up, I learned a song, a very simple song. I want to try to teach it to you. Okay, can we, let me get the rhythm, okay? Start snapping with, would you? Let's kind of loosen up a little bit. Right. It goes like this. Jesus the number one, the number one, Jesus the number, Jesus the number one, number one, Jesus the number, Jesus the number one, number one, Jesus the number, Jesus the number one, number one, Jesus the number one. All right. Now, that's not your homework, but here's your homework. I asked some of my African friends in Uganda, I said, what, what do you mean when you say Jesus is number one? And I had some thoughts of what they might say. I said, well, we, we are saying that he's most important. He's number one. Nobody's more important than Jesus. And I said, great. What else do you mean? They said, well, it means that he's utterly, he's unique. 
He came for a reason, and, and we have to look to him in order to have real life in God. I said, that's great. So here's your homework. Think about the number one. Jesus is not number two or three. What number is he? One. Number one. So when you think about it in your mind's eye, and you have an opportunity maybe to describe who Jesus is or what the Bible says about Jesus, think about the first chapter in these three books. Okay, John chapter 1, Colossians where we're reading chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is number 1. Alright, you got it? That's your homework. Go back this week and read John chapter 1, read the whole part of Colossians chapter 1, and then read Hebrews Chapter 1. If you want a sense of who the Bible says from three different authors that God used to describe the importance of Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus, no one is above Jesus. He's utterly unique. He's number one. Jesus, number one. Hebrews 1. John 1. Colossians, number one. Second and finally, and I'll, I'll be quiet. Not only is Jesus described as the image of God, but He is also referred to as, as our necessary intermediary. We don't need other humans. We don't need human uh, in, engagements or involvements. All we need is Jesus, and then He plants us in a church. Here's what the Bible says, beginning the second part of verse 20. It says, uh, uh, verse 19, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. Do you remember... Do you remember what John the Baptist said in the first part of his, the, the Gospel of John? He's standing there with some of the disciples who've begun to follow his teaching. And when Jesus goes walking by, here's what he says. He says, guys, look, look. He's pointing at Jesus. He says, look, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that was so meaningful to a Hebrew mind of the day. Because they knew out of the Old Testament sacrificial system that you would go to the priest and, and you would take the most perfect, unblemished, unmarked, perfect-looking, acting, behaving lamb you could find and he would be slain on the altar as a substitute for the people's sin. And the life of that animal would, would bleed out and God would look at that blood and, and He would say, now I will take and accept this offering and I will cleanse your sin for a time. But those sacrifices had to be repeated over and over again. And when John the Baptist points at Jesus, he says, There he goes. Here he is. Jesus is number one. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is going to do what no one else can do. No one else is qualified to do what Jesus will do. And Jesus, when he hung on the cross and he breathed out his last and he said, It is finished. He said that the very work that He'd come to do in dealing with the sin problem that you and I cannot deal with on our own. No one else can deal with it for us. Jesus is the only one who can, and He has done it. That's why we call it gospel. It's good news. It is good news. Amen? Amen. It is good news. I better get back on track. 
The Apostle Paul says that now in Christ, we are presented without blemish. You see, he's taking that sacrificial terminology and because of the, the sacrifice of Jesus now laid over us, we too stand before God because God looks at us through the work of Christ and we too are unblemished. If we had time this morning, we would open up to Hebrews chapter 4. That's the second part of your homework is to read Hebrews chapter 4. We would find there a description that we do not need a high priest because Jesus serves as our priest. Jesus Himself is the priest who ministers before the living Father on our behalf. His work does it. His death on the cross does it. And when we pray to Jesus, oh, it's so amazing because it says that He's not like the priests of the world who can't always identify with your life and your struggles and your hardships. It says Jesus has been tempted in every way, just like you and I are tempted, but yet was without sin. And so we are to take encouragement when we pray to Him. And then in verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, Because of the work of Jesus, we are now able with boldness to approach the throne of grace. Next week, we're going to talk about the grace of God. We're going to talk about how it is only through God's grace that we have access to the work of Jesus by grabbing hold of that through our faith. I hope you're seeing there's a lot of overlap in these topics, and it's intentionally so because one adds to and builds on the other. Jesus, by, uh, by grace, His grace, it's through Christ alone, by our faith alone. So sometimes this image, and I'm going to finish with this, this image is a little hard for us because... Let's face it, we live in a world where we feel pretty entitled, right? We feel entitled to things. We feel like nothing should be withheld. I mean, because I'm pretty special. You're pretty special, right? We, we think sometimes with the discussion of human rights and everything, it's been elevated to such a scale that we think that, that nothing should be excluded from my, my enjoying it. And so the thought of being unable to access anywhere for many of us, kind of goes against, rubs us the wrong way. Because after all, we should have access to everything. It's sort of how we live our lives these days. And so it, it can be hard for our modern mind to appreciate just how special the idea that because of who Jesus is and what He's done, that when you receive His work into your life, that you can boldly enter into the throne room of God. There's a really neat image in the Gospels. When it describes after Jesus died, he breathed out his last. There was an earthquake that went through the land. And it describes the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple had a lot of different rooms for different purposes. In one of the smallest rooms, it was the most special place. It was called the Holy of Holies. And in it was the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a representation of the presence of God on earth. And it was separated by this big floor-to-ceiling curtain that was really thick. And only one time a year could one person, the human high priest, could he go into there to offer certain sacrifices. And the moment Jesus breathed out his last, and he said, it is finished. The curtain is described as being torn from top to bottom. And it is such a beautiful picture that there is now nothing that separates us from God once we've accepted the work of Jesus. He is our high priest. He is the one who leads us into the throne room of God. And you know, we don't need biometrics. 
Because when you approach the throne room of God, He's not going to ask you for your thumbprint. He's not going to ask you to put your palm on a palm. He's not going to ask for your eyeball to scan it. He's not even going to look for facial recognition. You know why? When you come to Jesus, He gives you a new spiritual DNA. And so, when you do put your thumb on there, it's not your thumbprint that it's going to read. Yes, because it is. It's the thumbprint of Jesus. It's not your handprint. It'll be the handprint of Jesus. It's the eyeball of Jesus. Jesus, metaphorically, He becomes growing in you and develops you so that you can come boldly because of His work right into the very presence of God. And that is the great gift of Jesus alone. Father, we thank You for... The reminder today of just how special and unique Jesus is, of how we need the work that He's done, the work that is finished, the work that we most desperately need. And God, I pray this day that all of our hearts would be laid bare and softened before You, and that Your Spirit would be free to probe us and to interact with us. We would be eager to say yes. And we pray it in the name of Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen.